0: the phenotype of misinformation that takes off it's negative it's it's negative it's scary sounding right plays to our emotions right Um, it often has a moral dimension or an ideological dimension and it's easy to process
1: greetings everyone and welcome to unleashed the fastest hour on the internet where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, and I want to thank our seasoned sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca My guest today is Professor Timothy Caulfield. Timothy Caulfield is a Canada Research Chair in Health Law, a Professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health, and Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. He is the author of two national bestsellers, The Cure for Everything, Untangling the Twisted Messages About Health, Fitness, and Happiness. And is Gwyneth Paltrow wrong about everything when celebrity culture and science clash? His most recent book is Relax, A User's Guide to the Age of Anxiety. His award-winning documentary TV show, A User's Guide to Cheating Death, streams on Netflix in over 60 countries. And just as important, he's a crusader of truth and a fighter of misinformation, helping thousands of people separate fact from fiction every day on social media. Tim, welcome to Unleashed. Well, thanks for having me on, Jeff. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I, uh, Like many people, I think, I uh, have become increasingly interested in uh, in your area of expertise during COVID, with the rise of of misinformation, and uh, and so I, I am uh, you know I'm looking forward for us uh, today and the listeners to be able to dissect some of the things that you're seeing in the world and and uh, how we can start to sort of embark on our own journeys of, uh, of sort of battling, uh, misinformation. And I, and I thought a an interesting place to start, Tim would be, I kind of refer to you as this crusader for truth against misinformation. And I'm just so curious, how did you get on this path to begin with?
0: Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't my original, uh, academic, <laughs> academic strategy. I'll put it that way. Uh, I, when I got out of graduate school, um, I immediately started doing science policy work, you know, that's really what I am, you know, I in I'm in the School of Public Health and in uh, the Faculty of Law but I'm, I really think of myself as a science and health policy guy. And I was always fascinated with what kind of evidence do we use to make health and science policy. So whether you're talking about, you know, should the healthcare system uh, be reformed, you know, how do we make decisions around biotechnology and Uh, I I was very interested in the content of the evidence that we used to make those decisions. And it really became obvious very early in my career. So I'm talking decades ago that often the evidence wasn't so good, right? It wasn't so good. So uh, I I became fascinated in and how bad evidence, you know, shaped these big decisions. And Jeff, that quickly drew me to pop culture and the impact of celebrities and the impact of even things like you know newspapers, TVs, uh, how they shaped our, our scientific and health conversations. And that led me to uh, misinformation. Um, and uh, I've been obsessed with it ever since. So uh, I do empirical research on it. I think of myself as an interdisciplinary researcher too. I have this fantastic interdisciplinary team that I work with. So we really try to do empirical research on the nature of misinformation, but we're also very interested in how can we respond to it what can we do about it? And one of the interesting things is, Jeff, when I started doing this work, you know, I had colleagues and they'd go, oh, Tim, that's kind of a fun topic. You know, you get to talk about celebrities and stuff. And uh, But it was kind of niche, right? It was, you know, battling misinformation was kind of, I'll tell you, no one thinks it's niche anymore, Jeff. <laughs> this is like one of the central, central challenges of our time. It really is having an impact politically. Obviously, it's having an impact on our health. And, and it's having an impact on on our relationship and really on our communities
1: yeah well I, there's a couple of things uh, that really stood out for me in what you just said it's it's uh it's database decisions and it's relationships and most of the listeners of this podcast are in some kind of a leadership position in not-for-profits or for-profit organizations. And I wondered if you could just touch quickly, Tim, on what is the what are some of the impacts, I guess, that misinformation has on the workplace?
0: well, I, I hear from from business owners and and employers and employees uh, all the time and and they talk about uh, various dimensions of of misinformation or the impact that it's having on their communities. And for example, just just sort of day-to-day stuff, Jeff, like the impact it's having on relationships, you know, it it can create tension within the workplace because we've become so polarized, largely not entirely, but largely because of the embrace of misinformation. And that can be, I think, really problematic. I think, especially for small to mid-sized businesses because they may not have the infrastructure to deal with it the the other thing i'm hearing and it depends on the sector of course is people asking questions about where can they direct their employees uh their their uh the communities that they're working with their clients uh where can they direct them to get good information so that's the other kind of thing and i hear that both from the you know the nonprofit and and also from the profit sector uh and uh i think it's becoming more confusing right they're recognizing the impact that misinformation is having not just on their clients let's say if they work in the health sector or the biotech sector but but also uh on their employees you know how can they direct their employees to good information so absolutely i think it's having a tangible kind of measurable impact on the workplace environment on the relationship with clients uh but i also think it's having impact on individuals mental health and their well-being, And there's evidence to back that up.
1: Yeah, completely agree. And I, I do think that there's an even a more acute effect on anybody that is in a, that's in a formal leadership position. Not only are they having to sort of watch for their own biases and try to figure out fact from fiction and their own beliefs, but then they've got, if they've managed, they're managing a team of eight to 10 people, all of those people could have slight variations or a spectrum or myriad of opinions on the same topic. And most of us are not equipped or, or, uh, or nor are we taught on how to deal with some of those dynamics. So I'm hoping that we can cover some of those things uh, and give people a little bit of a toolkit to take away with, Tim, in today's conversation.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and happy to do that, Jeff.
1: Yeah. So what about origin story? So I, I'm, I'm always interested in how do these things, how, how do we breathe uh, you know, life into these things. And what would the origin story sort of be for misinformation if you've ever sort of gone down that rabbit hole before?
0: Oh, I've gone down the rabbit hole in a lot of origin stories. Uh, and, <laughs> and it is it is fascinating because it, it, it is both ad hoc. You know, you wonder, well, how do these random things take off, right? Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and then there are also situations where it seems to be carefully orchestrated. So, um, for example, let's use the 5G myth. Uh, you know, this is the idea that, you know, 5G technology is doing all this horrible stuff, and, including helping to spread COVID. I'm sure you've heard this, this myth. Yeah. And, of course, right off the top, absolutely no evidence to support it at all, right? It is clearly a conspiracy theory. But, but we saw early days in uh, COVID that this, that this bit of misinformation took off and and the reason I find this one fascinating is because yeah celebrities played a role here you know this this idea that 5g was is bad was lurking before the pandemic and then it was kind of reimagined you know restructured to become a covid uh a covid uh conspiracy and then people like Woody Harrelson gave life to it You know, they, uh, he he started tweeting about it and that just gave it oxygen. Now, the other reason I think this one's a good example of of misinformation spreading is because I I did this myself. I kind of laughed about it. Who's going to believe this, (laughs) you know? So we didn't take it seriously. So there's been really interesting research sort of modeling that has shown that had we taken this seriously and debunked it right out of the gate, it might have not, it, maybe it wouldn't have got a foothold, right? And so that's a good example of uh, how misinformation spreads. Yes, uh, prominent voices play a role. It might ha- already have uh, sort of an existing foothold in, in, the, in the subconscious of individuals that this is bad. Uh, and then the other element is ideology. It quickly became part of an ideological story. And I think we can come back to that uh, a little bit later, because yeah. I think that's be becoming a big factor uh and it also highlights how it's important to debunk stuff immediately no matter how absurd it is if i could use another example real quick jeff yeah the other really one i'm and i'm obsessed with this one is the idea that bill gates uh put microchips in in the vaccines I'm, i mean this is a hard core conspiracy theory right it's a hardcore completely absurd you know conspiracy theory why would he do it um but if you believe the polls as many as 30% of the united states believes that this is possible i mean this hardcore bizarre conspiracy theory so another really good example of uh, a conspiracy theory taking hold playing to people sort of you know bill gates you know he is this you know nefarious evil villain <laughs> in my in my universe so they already are predisposed to believe bad things about this individual um, we kind of ignored it when it first came out because it seems so absurd. It gets a real foothold and it becomes this basket of beliefs that you're supposed to adopt if you're part of a particular ideological community and it takes off, right? I mean, 30%, Jeff. Can you? I mean, it's yeah. remarkable. And, and a large percentage of Canadians also believe uh, that conspiracy theory. So social media plays a big role, ideology plays a, a big role. Uh, and uh, i'm going on too long but there is a very interesting study that came out just about i'm gonna say two months ago that it looked at sort of the, uh, the the traits of misinformation that spreads quickly so this is a really you know useful study and it builds on other work that's been done but i like yes. it because it kind of summarizes exactly what we're talking about so the phenotype of misinformation that takes off it's negative it's it's negative it's scary sounding right it plays yeah. it's it, plays to our emotions right um it often has a moral dimension or an ideological dimension and it's easy to process like it's easier more easy to process than say the truth so scary moral plays to our our, our uh ideological uh leanings um and uh, easy to process
1: in, that's really interesting. <clears throat> now, the other one with Bill Gates, I've been hearing a lot lately, is uh, the, uh, the the shift to plant-based diets uh, is is being orchestrated by him because he's buying up all kinds of farmland, and uh, so that's another interesting one. Now, you said something earlier that <clears throat> there are orchestrated <clears throat> attempts at misinformation, and then there's a sort of other categories of it. So, when these When these conspiracy theories start to pop up, about keep using Bill Gates as an example. Like, is are there a group of four or five influential people behind closed doors orchestrating it, or is this like a brush fire and it and it just starts uh, organically and spreads that way?
0: You know, I, I think all of the above. You know, you know, there are situations where, for example, nation states. We have more and more research talking about how nation-state. So, you know, sees Russia, as example, uh, has, uh, has been very successful at spreading misinformation, and, and they have a particular goal, right? They just want to throw sand in the gears. Their goal is to create information chaos, right? That's what their goal is. And, yeah. and, and we have a, a good body of evidence that tells us that they're doing it, and it works, right? So, you know, that would be your kind of star chamber, uh, example and, and just to give you some really dramatic data, Jeff, on how successful they are. There's been some really interesting research that's very controversial, but it has been replicated by other laboratories. Uh, my friend Frank Graves at EcoS Research has done this, and what he found is that individuals that support Putin uh, or and and support Russia are more likely to be anti-vax. And this is a very strong correlation. Yes, it's correlation research, but wow. it's incredibly strong, Jeff. Um, mm-hmm. So you have uh, individuals who believe that, you know, Ukraine has bio labs and that's why Russia uh, attacked. Um, those same individuals are in the same people who believe the anti-vax rhetoric. And again, that sounds like ridiculous, but it really highlights the uh, a bunch of really important things. Number one, that this information is coming from the same people, right? The same people yeah. are spreading the rumors, the, the, the propaganda about Russia are the same individuals, same voices that are often spreading misinformation about vaccines. And the other element I think is the ideological component to it, right? It's speaking to the same uh, people's, it, generally individuals with the same sort of ideological mm-hmm. leanings. And it's sort of a personal anecdote, as soon as the yeah. invasion happened, I saw this shift in my hate mail, you know, I get a lot of hate mail and the same people who are sending me hate mail about, about vaccines started sending me hate mail supporting, supporting Putin. I mean, who could believe that? Uh, But yeah, that, that, and as I said, this, this controversial research has been replicated by researchers in the United States and a couple of groups here in Canada.
1: So what are some of the common threads amongst those groups then that are, that are predisposed to supporting the war uh, on the Ukraine and being anti-vax.
0: So I want to be careful here because, um, yeah. you know, misinformation, it could happen to anyone, right? Anyone can fall yeah. for misinformation. I've fallen for misinformation. and We can come back to that. Um, yeah. but, uh, I think that's you know really important to recognize. It can happen to anyone across the ideological spectrum, you know, across the demographic spectrum, the socioeconomic spectrum. Uh, but when we're talking about COVID uh, misinformation, a lot of the misinformation is happening now. Yes, it is. Ha- there's lots of lots of research that talks about how there's more noise on the right right now uh, on the right Mm -hmm. wing politically. And I don't wanna pick on people's ideological leanings because we need diverse voices to have a robust democracy, but that's what the research tells us, right? And Mm -hmm. so uh, often what's happening is individuals that distrust government, uh, individuals that feel like perhaps they've been economically disadvantaged and there's actual research to back this up. You feel more economically disadvantaged, more likely to believe conspiracy theories um you, you as i've already said before you distrust government not just does government you distrust the dominant voices so you know cdc public health agency of canada um yeah. and, and there, you start to believe a cluster of of conspiracy theories so i i always say i could ask two questions sometimes even one question <laughs> uh jeff yeah. i could go out in the street and ask one or two questions and i could tell Th- what this the the cluster you know that what what that individual thinks about of about 20 things um you know they who did you vote for and are you vaccinated right and depending mm-hmm. on how they answer those two questions i could tell you how they think about ivermectin about how they think about masks how they think about russia how, on down this list of things And it and yes it's correlational you got to be really careful not to have this broad brush uh yeah but yeah. The data is there to back that up.
1: Yes, so uh, I'm with X. I, I know a lot of very smart people, people I've known for a very long time, and and I have very different views than them. And I don't I don't like to get caught in a which is right and which is wrong. But there's just like there's this disdain. You mentioned it, this mistrust or distrust of of anything mainstream or or dominant, and they hold them in contempt. But I have to wonder: like, have we been have we been burned too many times in the past by trusting like some of the stuff that's come out about the tobacco industry, government corruption that is only revealed down the road, and then there's a faction of people that are almost proved right. Like, how much is that feeding into this ultimate distrust of anything mainstream?
0: Yeah, it's an excellent point. And uh, sort of ironically, I, I do research on those things. Right? You know, I've done yeah. research on the commercial the, the damage that the commercialization of science can do, of of, of research, you know, that does real damage, right? Uh, uh, You know, I've written about the adverse impact of big pharma, they have been bad actors, right, Right, Jeff? So, you know, individuals can point to that. Uh, The problem, of course, is that that doesn't mean that this science is wrong. Um, And what it means is that we have to be careful that we have trustworthy science, right? Whenever we're talking about a particular topic. But I think it's also really important to highlight um, the the things that have taken hold right now as misinformation, they're clearly misinformation, right? We're not talking about a contested area of science. We're not talking yeah. about, you know, when you should get your booster or how much immunity do you get from Omicron. We're talking about stuff that is clearly misinformation you know ivermectin works bill gates put microchips in the vaccines you know there have been vaccines yeah. have caused cause more deaths than uh than they've helped people on and on this is stuff that is clearly misinformation and those who have been pushing misinformation um have done a very good job of of creating this perception that that we're trying to silence public discourse. We're trying to science, silence scientific yeah. debate, which isn't the case at all. But unfortunately, that argument, that narrative, has been very, very effective. In fact, there was a piece in the Washington Post yesterday, the day before, talking about how you know efforts to fight misinformation are going to silence doctors. That's not the case at all. You know, on the contrary, you know, on the contrary, we've done, we haven't done enough to stop those individuals. In addition to that, our own research, our own research has shown. That those narratives, those clearly wrong narratives, have had a yeah. dominant space in pop culture. You know, so you'll have individuals saying they're silenced and and there has been, you know, they're being censored and they're on Joe mm-hmm. Rogan saying that. You know, I should be so censored. <laughs> you know, I'm on, you know, yeah. the world's yeah, most right. popular podcast. Are they telling Tucker Carlson that they're being silenced or canceled? You're on Tucker Carlson. You know, the most popular show. Yeah. On, on cable TV. Uh, so, but despite yeah. that, you know, they've been very effective of, of creating this narrative that they're being yeah. silenced. Uh, but you're right, you're right. One of the reasons that that narrative is successful is because there have been instances in the past when uh, you know, big pharma, government, etc., have done things that are wrong. They've been bad actors and that plays into the conspiracy theory. Well, there must be bad actors now.
1: Yeah, uh, in the very same conversation with friends, uh, they will be uh, you know espousing the uh, the dangers of of uh, you know the, uh, the the motives of big pharma, and then they take a swig of water and and take their supplements from their naturopath. So I always find <laughs> that quite interesting. <laughs> now, and, and I, would I would suggest anybody saying that, saying that people are being silenced and censored, and censored. Uh, that's, that's probably the thing that's actually wrong with the world right now. Is everybody has a voice, everybody, everybody has, has a platform. platform. Jerry Seinfeld has famously said that. that uh, it used to be, you know, back in the day, you had to have something worth listening to to get famous, and now anybody can do it, you know, with, within reason, and I think that's one of the reasons that the spread of misinformation has been so bad. Now, Tim, I'd like to get into a little bit of, like, how do we start to, to fix this and solve this on a micro and a macro level, but the other thing I wanted to ask first, though, is how, because you said we're all susceptible to this, how can a person recognize if they're going down? up uh, uh, this path of misinformation and buying into some kind of a conspiracy.
0: Well, uh, there's good news and bad news here. <laughs> so let's, should we start with the good news or the bad news? I don't know. Let, let's start with let's, the good news. The good sure. news is that um, research has consistently shown, including one of my colleagues, Gordon Pennycook at University of Regina and David Rand at, at MIT, uh, they've they found that most people do want to be accurate, you know, despite all that cynicism we had at the beginning here, most people really do want to be accurate. I think, I I think that um, Gordon's team has found, I think it's over 80% of people, you know, put accuracy as a priority. And, and, and and that's not like a postmodern version of accurate, you know, these are people that really want to get, get at the truth. So, that's good news and the other thing that this the the the, uh gordon and and many and and a number of, of scholars actually around the world again research that's been replicated have found that if you can just nudge people right get people to pause for a moment we can come back to this in the solution uh yeah part of a part of the equation um if you can just get people to pause for a moment and to reflect before they share something, or even before they kind of internalize it, they're, they're less likely to believe misinformation and also less likely to share it. So that's that's kind of good news. But the reason I raise it here is it highlights how part of the problem is our frenetic, incredibly chaotic information environment. And it makes it more difficult to tease out the good stuff from the bad stuff. But just pausing for a moment can can make a big difference. Yeah. Of course, yeah. of course, one of the first things that you need to do is ask yourself, what kind of evidence is being used to support this claim? Is it just an anecdote? Is it just a mm-hmm. testimonial? Is it just an opinion? All of those things should put, you know, red flags, red flags, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it just one study? Uh, so, this mm-hmm. is the single study st- syndrome. I think that that's what they call it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, this one study is never going to tell the whole story, especially when it's a really complex topic you know biomedical topic a health topic it's never going to be one study but those pushing misinformation will often point to one study so always think what's the actual body of evidence say on this topic right so that's what you always remind yourself what's the body of evidence say and is in one study very rarely turns that over right uh always remind yourself of that the other thing that you need to do is ask yourself is there an agenda here Right? Are they playing to an ideology? Are they playing to my fears? That should also be a red flag. Uh, uh, Kate Starbird, she's a wonderful scholar at the University of Washington. She also researches misinformation. And and she gives this great bit of advice, Jeff. She says, if it feels like your team just got a touchdown, (laughs) that should be a moment to pause. Not, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, I knew it, I knew it. Always, on the contrary, it should be, you know what, Maybe I should double check this it feels like my team just got a big touchdown, you know ivermectin works. Yeah, uh, Yeah. pause and 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 double check at other sources. Um, And then the reverse is true also right if if you think it's scary or it's sensationalistic another reason to pause. So what kind of evidence are they playing to an agenda? Is it playing to my emotions? All those things should should be justifications to investigate uh, investigate further. So, yes. so the good news is those strategies work, and there there is evidence that, suggests that they that they really can work. The other thing that can rework work is pre bunking. There was a big study that just came out that backed, okay. backed this up. So just reminding yeah. people of what we just talked about, Jeff. You know that uh, yeah. that these things you know matter. And personal is there a personal attack in the in the tweet in the? That's another red flag. If you remind people that these are strategies that are used to push misinformation they're more likely to to see the misinformation when it emerges so you want to pre-bunk you want to debunk uh and then you also want to regulate We can come back come back to those things in a in a bit the bad news jeff is that um unfortunately it's getting more difficult to tease out the good science you know we're seeing more fake journals out there, All there's right. you know fake journals that that look incredibly real, and anti-vaxxers, for example, they'll publish in these fake journals. You know, there's fake uh, um, uh, Holocaust denial uh, journals. They look legitimate. Um, you need to be very, very careful, and, and and unfortunately, it is becoming more difficult. There's also predatory uh, journals, so pe- people can publish really low quality studies in these predatory journals, and then s- share them, and and um, it, it looks real. And even retracted studies, so studies that have been published in legitimate journals, but then have been retracted, can continue to circulate, they're called zombie studies, zombie papers, and they can still make a real real impact. So that's the bad news, right? The bad news is it is getting more challenging to tease out the good science from the bad science. But if you always remind yourself to think about what does the body of evidence say, that usually... Yeah. Usually, will allow you to navigate out of this mess.
1: Right. And, and well, part of the human condition, I think, has always been the like the knowing and the doing gap, Tim. and, and for me, there's two big problems here, and what you've said is there's a huge knowing gap. And then even if we have the knowledge that this is happening, being able to apply that knowledge to separate fact from fiction, uh, uh, real information from misinformation. That's a losing battle. And I mean, I have to admit, it, it kind of makes me feel a bit hopeless for the average person. Like, yeah. um, is it even, should we even expect that the average person should be able to do a, re, a relatively decent job of separating good information from bad?
0: I, you know, I often say, I'm sure you even probably had these conversations yourself. Oh, you know, apply those critical thinking skills, you know, use me- media literacy. Yeah. And those things sound like they're a lot of work. And, and I've even you had do. people, you know, when I give public lectures, I'll be talking to people afterwards and they'll say, you know, that sounds like a lot of work. I don't have time to do that. I I think this is another good news story. And because okay. the research tells us you don't have to really do that much. Just the one asking that one question, what kind of evidence is being used here? you know, pausing and asking that question. Yeah. yeah, That can make a difference. That can make yeah. a difference. So, you know, people don't have to be super scientifically literate in order to, for us to make a difference. Um, so that, I, I do think that is good news. Having said that, um, I, I do think we need to teach more about science, science literacy, you know, giving people the skills about how science really yeah. plays out. Yeah. And l- l- if I could, Jeff, I think this is important because Right now, we're seeing a lot of what I call COVID revisionist history, right? So what they're doing uh-huh. is they're going back and saying, um, you know, the vaccines don't work as you promised, you know, Matt, you said masks work, yeah. and now yeah. uh, they don't, or they didn't work, yeah. and then they did, and now they don't, and, and it drives me nuts, because science is hard, science is messy, the scientific debate yeah. uh, fact, they're not, it's not a list of facts that's immutable, it's, it's a process, and yeah. Uh, we we have to remember that, and what happens is those spreading misinformation try to weaponize the the fact that science is uncertain in order to spread misinformation. And if we teach people about the scientific process that it's not a list of facts, it's this pro, it yeah. is a process. I, I think they're more likely to yeah. not get pulled into that misinformation vortex.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, that is one of uh, my complaints about this is too or even observations is, is when people are proven wrong. And I mean, I, and I, I, I'm in the same boat when, when we are proven wrong, oftentimes we don't go back and say we were wrong. We sort of try to justify and revise uh, our memory. And maybe that's a protection me- mechanism as a, as a cognitive bias. I'm not sure, but I'm very encouraged though, by one of the things you said that 80, the research, the recent research uh, that 80% of people want To find the truth. And I think that that may be like a foundation of moving forward together with a spectrum of opinions at the table is relying on this this fact that we actually do want to find the truth. So let's find it together. And I think that leads into nicely, because I keep thinking as you're talking, all right, all of the people that I've had some difficult conversations with over the last couple of years, how can we equip people? And I'm thinking about workplace environments as an example, and even in our personal lives, but how can we equip people with some, some tools to start having these conversations to try to come to some common ground and help curb the impact of misinformation.
0: Yeah. You know, those one-on-one conversations can be really, they can be really tough. You know, I, uh, um, you know, I've had, as you can imagine, and I bet you have too. I've had a lot of really tough ones. Um, I, I think one of the most important things to do, um, and the, all these things are going to almost sound a little bit new (laughs) agey as a science advocate. Um, you know, it's not my usual go-to kind of um, rhetoric, but, you know, yeah. I think it really is important to be empathetic and uh, yeah. it's hard, you know, it's hard when it feels like the individual you're talking with is f- filled with rage and hate and is polarized, yeah. but but try to get a sense of, you know, the foundations for that, um, Yeah. whether it's your friend, a family member, a, a colleague at work, you know, try to get, sen- and research tells us that matters, right? Uh, and the yeah. other really important thing to do is listen. We're all, all terrible yeah. listeners, you know. Try to try yeah. to listen. Um, the other thing that that's valuable, and again, research backs this up, is to try to find that common ground because we we have common ground with everyone. Whether it's concern yeah. about family members, whether it's frustration with the uncertainty of the science, you know, we can find common ground. Uh, so that's I think yeah. really uh, really important. Uh, the other thing is give them a path to credible information. And again, some evidence to back this up. And this is the kind of thing that, that I think employers can do. Um, Yeah. uh, Point them in the direction of credible information and give them very basic tools to be better critical thinkers and not in a patronizing way, Jeff, you know, Oh, you're, you don't know what you're talking about, but, but, but in a way that allows them to, to go on that journey themselves. And the other thing of course is, is, is patience no one ever changes their mind in front of you i don't think that's <laughs> has that ever happened i don't think you know since like grade one i don't think anyone's ever yeah. changed, you know now that you mentioned it tim you're right that never happens yeah. uh so be patient be patient and no one to tap out yeah. if the the temperature starts to rise yeah. you know ta- tap out yeah um, uh, and i i think that those strategies you know it's it's the, these are ongoing we have to be patient these are ongoing conversations um and I've seen it work. You know, I, I've had situations where people have actually emailed me after or something like this. You know, now that you mention, they really did change their mind, right? But it took yeah. a while. It was a process.
1: Yeah. No, those are some great tips. Uh, what are some common sources of credible, credible information? Because I think that, that directing people on the path of credibility, that's a really important point. But I, I think that might be the hardest one for people to understand of, of those five suggestions that you had.
0: Well, again, this is a good news, bad news story too, isn't it? Isn't it Jeff? Because (laughs) one of the things that we're, you know, had you said that to me uh, even three years ago, I would, I could, I could start listing things. So the problem of course, is that people don't trust the CDC. People don't trust the public health agency of Canada. People don't trust the world. (laughs) You know, not, I shouldn't say people because um, most people do, you know, most people do and research tells us, especially in Canada, United States, the numbers are a little more depressing, but, most people in Canada still do trust these sources, uh, but you're seeing a, a greater sector of society. And this is because of misinformation, right? Because people are, are suggesting these entities are part of conspiracy theories, um, they don't trust these, these sources. But um, to be honest with you, uh, uh, these are the kinds of places that you wanna go. You want, I always say that you should go to a source that aggregate, aggregates the science in a responsible manner. So in other words, mm-hmm. they look at that body of evidence. They do consider the, the um, conflicts of interest that might skew the yeah. data when they're weighing the data, but they aggregate yeah. the science in a responsible manner. And yes, that is in general, and not that these entities have always gotten it right, but they skew to uh, getting it right. You know, the CDC, yeah. the Public Health Agency of Canada, the World Health Organization. Uh, and, and, and if you don't trust those websites, just use them as one data point. Right. And then and then look at other entities that aggregate the science in a responsible manner. And if you do that, I think you are going to get an accurate picture about let's you know, we've been talking about COVID about the efficacy of the efficacy of 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 vaccines. But but people are are so good at at motivated reasoning. You know, they'll they'll ignore all of those facts and they'll find the one data point that that supports them. So that's the other thing that you you can remind yourself, you know, how much am I letting confirmation bias play on my, my perception of this topic? And I'll give you one, you know, very recent example. I, 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 again, I'll go to, I'm turning to my hate mail here, Jeff. Um, yeah, uh, someone told me, you know, I'm an effing idiot and I can't effing, but you know, they saw it was as a result of an interview I did. And, um, Uh. they, the proof that they were, they forwarded to me was, uh, this headline uh, from a blog <laughs> about an Alabama embalmer that found blood clots in the bodies he was embalming, <laughs> in other words, and so that was his evidence that the vaccines were doing harm. So Alabama and embalmer versus, you know, thousands of credible research studies done by independent scientists about the, sci- the efficacy of the vaccines and the a- Alabama embalmer uh, wins, right? <laughs> so remind yourself, you know, try to do a check. Am I allowing this one study, this one data point to overwhelm what the body of evidence actually says? Okay. So the other credible source, of course, I have to mention is is our own project, hashtag science up first, right? Hashtag science up first. This is a, a social media initiative that we've put together. Uh, we're on TikTok, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter where we are trying to put forward credible information. We're trying to aggregate the science in a responsible manner. Uh, we are doing it. We started with COVID, but now we're starting to move into a lot of different topics. Yeah. Um, and we do try to make this content readable, you know, very shareable. We try to use diverse voices. We try to make it positive, you know, very upbeat kind of messaging. Um, and we hope, we hope that this turns out to be a, a great yeah. resource for Canadians and really for everyone around the world. And by the way, Jeff, it's been fantastically successful. We've, I think we're, we're starting to approach a billion interactions. So, you know, hundreds of billions yeah, of interactions brilliant. on, on the different social media platforms.
1: Well, that's a great sign. I think that's a confirmation too of that 80% of the population really wanting to find the truth. Uh, so I, th- I think that's really encouraging. Uh, believe it or not, I had a note, I wanted to ask you about motivated reasoning. So you beat me to it. And I can appreciate there's <laughs> probably a whole bunch of people listening. like, what was that term? Uh, Googling it, trying to write it down. What is motivated reasoning?
0: Well, motivated reasoning, it, it, it's sort of like, I think of it as a uh, conglomerate of, of cognitive biases that we we all have. And, and basically, yeah. and, and we all do this, by the way, right? I, I do it, Jeff, yeah. you do it. <laughs> um, it's mm-hmm. you, you have an agenda. Right. You have something that you believe strongly in and that you find you find um, rationales and evidence to support that that position and you ignore yeah. what the evidence actually says. You know, so you're motivated to develop a particular conclusion to support your yeah. preconceived notions are um, are. Yeah. Uh, Confirmation bias is probably the strongest cognitive bias that plays into motivated reasoning, reasoning. So what's confirmation bias? That's our tendency to read, to sort of internalize, to believe data that supports a preconceived notion versus um, the data that's that's already out there. And and we all do it. (laughs) We all do it. I I put I put some uh, one of my feeds. I I put out a a question to the sort of to to, uh, my followers. You know what is the area where you sort of in science and research where you use motivated reasoning the most and it sort of would invite people to be reflective and i said exercise yeah. research if there's a study that says exercise is good i don't even look at the methods <laughs> you know i yes. posted which is wrong right because a lot of that data yes. is bad it's observational it's maybe a small end yeah. so we all do it we all do it so kind of remind yourself you know am i am i deploying motivated reasoning is confirmation bias winning here you know, try to remind yourself that you might be falling prey to your own sort of psychological tendencies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one one of the, one of the the most most sort of dangerous parts parts that that I've learned about motivated motivated reasoning reasoning is the smarter smarter or more, or uh, more intelligent a person, a person is the harder is it is to convince you of another point of view, point of view. and because uh, we're just so adept at not only uh, finding information that, that confirms our preconceived belief, belief but explaining it as well, well. And, and i and i think that that's um that's a little dangerous, dangerous. and i'm the same way, way. Anything, that's anything that's like fitness like and nutrition related <laughs> uh, i'm like i'm all i'm all <laughs> the way in this girl. And yes. Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah, that's right. It was Jen Gunter that posted something controversial a year ago that blew up, and it was that uh, coffee is not a uh, is not a, a diuretic, uh, despite uh, <laughs> popular belief. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, there's a few other things I've come across in the last couple of years. I think that support some of your framework for having these conversations, and and I think you know for the workplace and any relationship for that matter, but just with this lens of how do we have these conversations in the workplace. I think it's really important that we prime ourselves for these conversations and don't just go into them unprepared. And And I think a couple of things that are helpful is if you're leaning in, putting the relationship above all else, and, and with like an air of curiosity that you're coming in with an open mind. And some of the frameworks that I've seen, there's uh, there's been some really good work done by Dr. Tina Opie out of Boston. She's got this framework called Dig and Bridge. And the, basically the way it works is anytime you're in a conversation with somebody that you might be in conflict with is picking an element of their argument that you like and an element of your own that you don't. And it is so simple. And it's so powerful. Uh, you know, some of the work that Adam Grant did and I think, again, was interesting, too, like taking a Yankees fan and a Red Sox fan and hearing more of their origin stories of growing up as kids helped them come together a bit more and all of that stuff. So uh, there's certainly strong uh, themes, uh, I think, in overlap in terms of what you said there, Tim. So that's really, really um uh, helpful. Uh, what, what about, I guess, on a on a more macro level? Then, I mean, what? How do we start to get ahead of this as a society? Because I I I, ha- I, have, I have a reasonable amount of confidence in the micro, just my cohort of close friends and, and and colleagues, that we can figure this out. But I'm I'm really concerned on a societal level.
0: Yeah, so am I. So am I. And I, and I think that um, it's one of those issues that we're going to have to come at it from every direction. I always, you know, often I'll get people out, you know, what's the tool that's gonna fix this? It's not gonna be one tool, right, Jeff? It's gonna be, we're gonna have to come at it from absolutely every direction. You know, it's like, think of something like smoking, where we, in order to drive down smoking rates, we deployed a whole bunch of different kind of regulatory tools. We used education, we used, you know, good, science communication, et cetera, cetera. It's going to be the same thing here, except even more complex, right? Even more complex. We're going to have to come at it from absolutely every direction. So, uh, and and it's not going to be a battle that's won. It's going to be an ongoing war, unfortunately. I really think it is. And so uh, on that macro level, uh, you know, we absolutely have got to teach critical thinking skills and media literacy. I think we start in kindergarten, <laughs> you know, we start in kindergarten yeah. uh, and in some of the Scandinavian countries, they do exactly that, you know, teaching that, you know, science, literacy, critical thinking skills. And we have to teach it throughout the education process and, and, and beyond, right, for, you know, adult learners, yeah. et cetera. So we've got to do that. Uh, I think it should be core, a core part yeah. of our education process. Um, I think that we also... Uh, obviously need to empower people to be able to uh, spot misinformation. We've talked a little bit about that. Uh, We need the the social media platforms to do more. We could have an entire podcast on on that, Jeff, but I think everyone recognizes that the social media platforms have to do more. There is, you know, a little bit of good news that I think they're starting to recognize that. The the bad news of, you know, they're not doing enough, but whatever interventions they use, it's gotta be, I think, um, evidence-based. It's gotta be evidence-based. And ideally, I would like to see, you know, there being some kind of independent oversight. That's not going to happen. That's a dream because these are private actors. But ideally, that'd yeah. be nice in a liberal democracy to have some kind of oversight. Um, and and whatever, whatever tools they use, as I said, evidence-based and transparent. We do need to do pre-bunking um, and a, a growing wow. body of evidence that tells us that this works, that this works, The pre-bunking works. Uh, So those that is, again, reminding people what misinformation looks like, the kind of strategies that are used to push misinformation. If you do that, studies are consistently telling us that people are more likely to see misinformation. You've got to debunk and debunking does work. It does work. And this, of course, is the area that I am really passionate about. Um, It may not feel like it works, Jeff, but it really does work. You know, I think it, it feels like there's this tide coming in and you're trying to hold it back. But yeah. if you look at the, again, the body of evidence, it tells us, this is good news, right, that a good debunk can really make make a, a significant difference. Um, yeah. and, and then we also want to, we want to regulate. And so what do I mean? And that's a scary word. I know people yeah. like to hear yeah. that. And I agree. I, I agree it's a scary yeah. word. But what do I mean by that? So I, I think entities like the FTC, the FDA, Health Canada, they've got to do more to regulate those that are clearly pushing misinformation and the regulatory tools yeah. exist to take action. So, you know, in the health space, there's some regulatory tools that can be used. Uh, regulators like the College of Colleges of Physicians and Surgeons need to do more about their members and whether we're talking about nurses, yeah. etc. And I also think we have to, we, we should de-platform. And again, that sounds scary because it sounds like we're impinging on people's yeah. freedom of expression, but we should yeah. de-platform uh, when appropriate. And so I actually think that that should be an extreme tool. I don't think it, yeah. the, you know, sort of last resort and should be only be used when clearly transparent rules have been breached. Uh, research tells us that deplatforming does work. You know, we've had a couple studies now, and again, it's complicated. We probably need more research to back this up, but the research that exists tells us that deplatforming works. And by works, I mean it decreases the spread of misinformation. It sort of decreases the toxic nature of a uh, of a particular topic that that actor was was prominent yeah. in. So. Uh, Those are just some of the tools that we need to use as a society, and of course we need to continue to do good research here, and and that's also, I think, another good good news story. We're starting to see more and more research in this space. The studies are getting bigger and more robust. That's really good. Uh, And and I've been obviously following following the literature really closely for a very long time, and it's just taken off, right? And we're signing all these great young scholars that are doing amazing research here. So that's good news. And of course, we need more voices out there debunking, you know, and, and again, I think that's another good news story where all these great, young, diverse, dynamic voices, science and foreign voices, getting on social media and, and playing an important role. And holy cow, this is a shift over the last three, four years, which I just think is fantastic.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that debunking is really effective. Whose responsibility is it to do the debunking?
0: Yeah, what, you know, what a, what a great question. Um, okay, so I, I think it's everyone's responsibility, You probably could have guess <laughs> I was gonna say that, you know, I, I think that um, employers, you know, nonprofit organizations, uh, they need to get involved, they need to recognize the problem, and they need to, mm-hmm. to get out there and debunk so they may do that within their institutions, but they can also be part of the broader conversation and you're starting to see uh, organizations do that. You know, you're starting to see, especially nonprofits. You know, I follow a lot of nonprofits in the health space, and you're starting to see them yeah. do more and more of that. Now, of course, they're going to want to be careful that they're the right voice for the particular debunk. But often they are. Often they're an ideal voice because yeah. they might be a trusted voice, right in that in that yeah. space. So I, I do think that that we need to have. Uh, it's everyone's responsibility and we need to have more people debunk. I also think that I'd like you know, more scientists and clinicians. Sometimes I, I think it is a responsibility of the scientific community to get out there and debunk. I, I work mm-hmm. closely with the stem cell community. I do a lot of research on stem cells, especially unproven yeah. stem cell therapies. And I worked yeah. with the International Society for Stem Cell Research, and they agreed when they put forward their guidelines for their, you think of that community, right? That big scientific yeah. community. They agreed and they say it's their scientific responsibility of that community when they see yeah. misinformation to publicly correct the record. I love it. And I'd like to see more, more of that. And we are, we are seeing more of that in the scientific community. Um, obviously clinicians, you know, nurses, you, know, you, you name it get out there uh, and debunk. I think it's part of your responsible professional responsibility to do that. Um, Maybe not as an individual, but I think as a profession. And I actually think that the big organizations, you know, the regulators, the World Health Organization, you know, uh, Public Health Agency of Canada, I think it's really important that they do it also universities, and we are seeing that more. One of my favorite examples is the FDA had this great tweet in response to the ivermectin craze. You know, they, they tweeted, you're not a horse, you're not a cow. Seriously, all just stop it. I love that tweet. A lot of people criticize that tweet saying, oh, it's kind of yeah. glib for an entity like the FDA. No, no, we need entities like that to put out shareable science-based content mm-hmm. that's going to make a difference. So I would like to see yeah. more of that kind of stuff. And thankfully, I, I, I think we are.
1: And writing some of those, uh, some of the uh, the scientific studies and reports that come out, if they could read, if they could read them for, or write them for the average human to read, I'd appreciate that too. But I don't know if that's uh, ever going to be uh, ever going to be possible. And I, I know how hard it is the whole thought of debunking, I mean, the emotions that go into that. Uh, there's, there's nothing, you know, not many things that are worse on social media than being proven wrong and being sort of, you know, jumped on for uh, for saying something unpopular. So that that's difficult. And, you know, I, I often think about, the fact that like our brains are not really wired or at least have not evolved and caught up to a social media world. And I think that's the same with the legislation. We still have we're trying to we're trying to sort of play a game of, uh, of catch up. Uh, Tim, I was wondering about one of the uh, maybe more powerful examples that you can think of in a sort of recent memory where somebody changed their mind about something.
0: Um, well, we can use it in the context, you know, it's, it's, it's with the misinformation people. Uh, I think it's more, <laughs> it's more challenging because they'll dig in. Yeah. I mean, think about ivermectin, right? I mean, we've had study yeah. after study after study saying ivermectin doesn't work and people can't, you know, w- when you've built your brand, when you've built yeah. your narrative around mm-hmm something like ivermectin working it becomes incredibly difficult for you to change your mind talk about motivated reasoning right they'll you know the mental yeah. gymnastics is at an olympic level right? you know they'll do whatever they yeah. can to maintain that belief but yeah. you do see individuals changing their mind about things like uh climate change and we've seen that happen on um a global level yes uh, there's a ton of nuance to that very, very complicated, but you have seen a shift even in the United States, right, on a population level. Uh, so that's pretty big deal, right? When you start to see more people accepting the fact um, that climate change is happening, that it's you know man, largely human human made, um, uh, or or that humans are playing a significant role, th- these that that's really important. Uh, I, also with GMOs, you've seen that subtle shift yeah. it's still quite you know a big you know that jeff i don't know if you knew that that is one of the areas where there is the biggest difference between what the scientific community says and what the public believes i, I think it's still number one did you know that
1: no um, i didn't know
0: yeah so no. if you go out and you ask I, I still think most canadians think that there's some health problems associated with consuming gmos and there's no evidence to yeah. back that up at all yeah. and the and this is a good example because it this is a belief that largely resides on the left we're talking about ideological spectrum we don't want to pick yeah. on just the right wing here but yeah. um most of the vast majority of of uh of the scientific community recognizes that and and that's the biggest shift but we have seen we've have seen some some movement so you know that's an example of of you know good science communication making a difference and one of the most dramatic examples is we just lived through it. And I know people think about COVID being um, all about misinformation and all these people believing nonsense, but you've got to remember where we were, Jeff. You know, there was a time when about 50% of Canadians had some degree of vaccination hesitancy. You know, we went from that to almost 90% acceptance. That is, you know, yeah. we, we, we got to celebrate our successes. <laughs> you know, that yeah, was a, a massive, massive success. Same yeah. with vaccine mandates. I know we saw, you know, the trucker movement. We saw people marching in the streets, uh, these extreme views. But the vast majority of Canadians understand and accept the need for mandates in those extreme circumstances, right? You know, when when called yeah. for. And the other example is masks. You know, I, I, I follow the behavior change literature very, very closely. Uh, I know how difficult it is to change human behavior. We went from zero in 20, you know, February 2020, to, I think, almost approaching 90% in most parts of Canada and all parts of Canada. Those are success stories of people changing their minds, right? And and a lot of people changing their minds, you know, the vaccination hesitancy one is a good example, because a lot of the hesitancy was based on misinformation. The individuals that are left believing, you know, who are anti-vax, and there's research to back this up, it's almost entirely now based on the embrace of misinformation and ideology. You know, early days, there were issues about access. There were issues of trust. Um, there were issues, you know, things like needle needle fear, needle phobia. Uh, but now the, the, that small percentage of Canadians that are hardcore anti-vaxxers, it's all, you know, entrenched misinformation, you know, conspiracy theories and ideology. Uh, and I think yeah. we often often forget that, and we forget this huge success story we've had uh, with mm-hmm. the vast majority uh, of, of Canadians. Yeah,
1: science is always sort of updating itself, and I like to think science falls uh, forward or fails forward. What does healthy discourse look like? Because there's all, there's risks with getting the vaccine, and and they're small, but there are some. But so, what does healthy discourse around science and 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 facts look like, Tim?
0: Yeah it's a great it's a great question and and there's some interest really interesting science communication tensions there because yeah. uh, i think there's you know there's healthy discourse and then there's powerful discourse right so yeah. the healthy discourse it's humble right it's it's recognizes and it sort of embraces the scientific uncertainty it recognizes this process that's happening it 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 listens to these other voices it it, it doesn't encourage false balance, which I think has been a real problem and, and remains a problem. Um, and by false balance, I mean, you know, sort of giving equal voice to fringe views because, hey, we have to have, you know, the flat earther and, and the uh, astronomy expert in the same room. You know, we do too much of that. I think we have too much false balance and we've done research actually on on the existence of false balance in the media. Uh, but we do want to have that kind of humble open-minded approach to, to, to science uh, and, and especially when we're communicating with the public. The problem is that may not be the punchiest way to talk about stuff. And I think that that's what happened. The mistakes that were made, we keep talking about COVID and I know everyone's sick of it, I'm sick of it, but I think that's yeah. the mistakes that happened early in in COVID where you had these kind of almost dogmatic statements coming from the CDC, coming from the public health agents of, of Canada when really the science was still shifting. And they probably should have said, look, the science is shifting, <laughs> uh, yeah. but this is our the best advice we have now based on the science, recognizing that the science is gonna change in the future. And instead we had these kind of dogmatic statements about the things we're yeah. supposed to do. I think we got better as, as the, um, the pandemic progressed. But we've got to be better about this in the future. And I think that there has been a lot of interesting research on this um, and how important it is to, to recognize scientific uncertainty and to bring, you want to bring the public along on the scientific journey, right? And, and I think that that's what we, yeah. what we need to do going forward.
1: Yeah, I like a lot of what you said there. Um, I'd like to have a little Tim time now. I'm interested in a little bit more about you uh, and, and sort of some of the things that you do in your life. And uh, w- the first question I had for you was how, like, what are some, I guess, how and what are some simple tips that you use in your own life to check your own biases?
0: Um, so I I do try to, to pause, <laughs> um, I, I really try to live that. I try to walk the walk. Is that how you say? It? <laughs> you know, I,
1: uh, walk the talk. Because
0: the, the, the mistakes I have made, and we all make them, right? We all make them. I think you have to recognize that you're going to screw up. And is when I have haven't paused and when I haven't reflected. So I try to remind myself to do that uh, when I'm reading something, when I'm sharing, especially when I'm sharing something on social media. Um, I try to do that. The other thing I try to do, uh, and And my colleagues, you know, my sort of ideological (laughs) predispositions aren't going to believe this. I try to read across the ideological spectrum. I actually subscribe to, um, you know, high quality, (laughs) high quality newspapers from around the world across the ideological spectrum. Um, And I try to read them. And sometimes, you know, I don't, you know, I don't have time to, to read everything. But I really try to get a sense of what thoughtful people are saying across the ideological spectrum. Um, I think that that's important and I, I do think it's helped me understand what's going on. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I try to do is I really try not to fall for the one study, the one study syd- syndrome, um, especially in areas that I'm passionate about, like, like exercise. Um, and, uh, the other thing I have to do, cause I'm, you know, you've, you're experiencing this right now <laughs> is I do try to listen. Cause I have a tendency to, you know, I get very excited about topics, so I do try to pause and listen to what my, you know, the other other side is saying. Um, I, so I, I try to I try to do all those things. You now my my family members will laugh at me and say that and my kids will say you don't do that, Dad. <laughs> but I really <laughs> I really try to do all
1: of those things. Thanks for sharing that. Because you mentioned you, you uh, you're very intentional about reading across uh, uh, you know a myriad and a spectrum of opinions. What is the last thing that you read that really caused your brain to get twisted in a knot?
0: Well, that's a that's a great that's a great question. Um oh, I'm really pausing here. I, I'm not sure I could come up with one uh right out right out of the gate. I I, I and I know there's one that oh I, I there was a fascinating I know what it was, and I, I was trying to I was trying to um sort of gather uh, gathered uh, why why this had the impact on me. Okay, so there was an interesting, it was a systematic review that came out very recently about trigger warnings. Now, I don't know if you saw this study. So basically the systematic review said trigger warnings don't work and they might actually do harm. Now, so as someone who's very interested in the mental health issue, research literature, this kind of cut against my, you know, both my my thinking on the topic and also kind of maybe my ideological leanings, you know what I mean? Like my, my tendency to want to think of something proactive we can do to help people um, who might be vulnerable, right? Um, and this seems like a, a simple strategy that is is respectful and, and we should deploy. And 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 so that caused me to go back and look at all the literature. And there actually is a lot of literature that is pretty iffy, Jeff, in this space about trigger warnings. And there is some studies that suggest trigger warnings might do more harm than good. And, and of course that plays to kind of like the alt-right. And so I didn't want to believe it. Right. I didn't that's, want
1: to believe that's it. the touch, but Tim, that's the touchdown moment, right? So that's that, going to exactly running to the end zone saying, yes, you know, we got it. Hail Mary. We did it. Yeah. The, you. And that's what I heard. Of
0: course, you know, I, when I posted it, I heard from all the people on the alt-right, who, you know, that was their touchdown moment. Um, but You've got to, you know, it was a really good example. And there, there are others I could think of, but that was the one that popped in because it happened relatively recently. Uh, and it was a good example of, a, of how, you know, you really do need to pause sometimes and, and remind yourself what the evidence says. Now, I want to be clear here. This is a complex topic. And, and yes. so with so many topics, it's the answer is more. And in my last book, I talked about this. Oh. The answer is more, the evidence is way more messy than it's often portrayed. Right. That's, that's actually the, the, the conclusions. It's not as definitive and as often portrayed, whether you're talking about flossing (laughs) or whether you're talking about trigger warnings.
1: Yes. Thanks for sharing that. I know it it could be tough on them in the moment to come up with one. And I do remember you posting about that. No. And and that makes me want to dig into that a bit, a a little bit more Um, now with the large audience that you uh, that you have captured in the last in the over the last decade or so. Yeah. You deal with a lot of trolls and I wonder if it's like, you know, do you, do you build up a uh, repellent to this? Like what is it like for you emotionally to deal with internet trolls and pushback?
0: Yeah. That the, it can be tough. I got to admit it. You do. I'm sure you, you know, you're in the, in the public sphere too. And, and you do get a lot of hate mail. I get, I get, sometimes I'm impressed with the amount of effort that people put in almost flattered a little bit because I'll wake up every morning and there'll be my regular hate mailers, you know, and, and, So there's one hate mail. I won't obviously use this individual's names. that sometimes I'll get 10 a day. I'm like, you know, holy cow, that's a lot of effort. Like, you know, I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to send Tim 10 (laughs) emails. Um, It it can be very, it can be demoralizing. um, And some of them are really nasty. You know, I've had to report some to the cops. You know, I've gotten death threats. Um, I'm involved in a lawsuit with an anti-vaxxer. Um, and those things can, can, they can wear on you and they can be, um, they can be time consuming. And the other thing that happens, Jeff, is a lot of those people, especially the ones that are really organized, their goal is to chill, you know, to cast a chill over, you know, they don't, they want to just make me second guess myself. And and, they, so, and, and it's way worse for women and people of color, right? It's way uh. worse for, for them. And research tells us that. Um, and so, uh, I, I think my advice always is Ignore, 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 and try to have a, la- a laugh about it. Uh, you know, easy, sometimes it's easier for someone like me to say that where I have, you know, institutional support. But I, I think it that's the best thing that you can do. And, and don't engage. You know, every once in a while, I'll engage. <laughs> and I don't know why. You know, 99% of the time, I won't engage. And I'll do some, sometimes I'll say something absurd and I'll engage and then it just, it just becomes a nightmare. Um, so, you know, you got to develop a thick skin. Uh, I wrote a piece for the Globe and Mail on this topic. And um, I, I think it's also really important. And this is something employers, uh, nonprofits, you know, small businesses can do, you know, support your, your, your colleagues that are doing this. You know, sometimes you can't support them formally, but you can su- support them emotionally. And as a colleague, I think it's so important, right? To support the, not everyone wants to get out there and debunk, but those that are doing it, I, I really think they need institutional support. Um, and uh, so that's something I, I, I think can be very very helpful. My institution, University of Alberta, has been amazing, but I know that's not always the case. It's not always the yeah. case. And uh, I think as we're all trying to fight this misinformation battle, we really 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 need that institutional support so people feel like there's someone out there that that you know that sort of have their back. Uh, I, I will say this: um, there's this wonderful community now uh, growing in Canada. The The science communication community is fantastic. They're fun. They're vibrant. They're smart. Um, There's all these fantastic, diverse voices. So that's also something that I draw on um, and, and that I feel very fortunate to be part of.
1: Yeah, no, I think you hit on something really important. There is like is the the emotions and the mental well being and mental health of people that are out there in the public eye from an institutional care perspective. Because I think a lot of times those emotions go unnoticed and unchecked because we don't really talk about them. We kind of keep them to ourselves. And so employers uh, should definitely be on the lookout for that stuff. Um, and I know for myself, I try. Not, I don't engage with anybody that doesn't have a picture or a real name. And if they're really not well intentioned, but I, I, you know, what I found is the things that I get. Sort of stomped on the most is when I get a little bit outside of my uh, maybe normal domain. But what here's what I find though is I learn so much about those things, and so I I never want to come across um, as a know it all about things I know not I don't know much about. But I really have learned to enjoy those conversations about things I'm less familiar (laughs) with because there's just so much growth from people that are way more uh, familiar and well versed in those in those areas. So I've 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 really enjoyed that aspect of social media.
0: You you can learn from your your hate mail too, Jeff. I, I've actually done done a kind of a rough study of my hate mail, and uh, I thought it was fascinating. You know, I when I worked with one of my um, my trainees, and we we kind of aggregated all all of my hate mail and looked at the themes in there. Right, and it was a it was a really interesting learning experience because the themes were consistent, the formats were consistent. You know, the the grie- grievances were consistent, and we've touched on some of them today so you know even hate mail has got something to teach us
1: <laughs> yeah that is awesome that is awesome you can learn from your hate mail you that's going to be a great uh, that's going to be a great soundbite uh for uh for the episode the, tim what's a book that you wish somebody would write or a ted talk you'd like to see somebody give uh
0: i, I think on the we touched on it the scientific process you know i i think someone who really does a punchy, um, exciting, engaging, entertaining short um, talk on the nature of the scientific process. Because so much of the misinformation I see out there is built on a misinterpretation of how science works. Um, For example, (laughs) um, my hate mailers, I, it's incredible how many I've, how many bits of hate mail I've got that refer to what I'm just about to talk to, to to highlight. They love to bring up the fact that I got a grant from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and there was an article in the Edmonton Journal about it. You know, Caulfield gets three hundred eighty thousand uh, dollars to study misinformation, and somehow they think it's a gotcha moment, right? They think it's a gotcha moment. Oh, you're bought out. You know they think that somehow I put that in my personal bank account. <laughs> you know they don't understand that this is a peer-reviewed grant process. That that money goes to trainees and graduate students and the methods that we use. That I share it with the other institutions, individuals like Gordon Pennycook at the University of Regina. Uh, that the oversight for that that money is incredible at the institutional level and also at the funding level. Um, but again and again and again and again, um, that comes up, as somehow, somehow it's a gotcha moment. And of course, that's because people don't understand how research is funded, how it's done, you know, how it's a slow, messy, iterative process. And I think if more people understood that, they might be less likely to embrace, embrace misinformation because they'll recognize you know, how science actually plays out.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I uh, I think I, I subscribe to sort of an unofficial slogan of "In Tim, we trust." You have certainly been, <laughs> you know, a, a go-to uh, resource for me, uh, Tim. Like I, I probably I don't have time to articulate just how helpful you have been to me personally in the in the last couple of years, in particular, in this just trying to make sense of what's going on in the world. Uh, I, I honestly can't thank you enough, and. You have uh, done that for thousands and thousands of people, and not just during COVID, well, long before that, but the work that you do is so incredibly important and so incredibly meaningful. As you have seen your own influence and audience grow, what has that impact meant to you?
0: Well, first of all, thank you for that. I think it's incredible, you know, that makes my skin a little tougher for the next batch of hate mail <laughs> that I get, uh, but, uh, I I feel incredibly fortunate to have uh, a, a an incredible team that I work with. I've already touched on this, this already. Um, you know, first of all, it is rewarding to see as a researcher, you know, I've been at the university um almost three decades, uh, believe it or not, Jeff. And you know, you always want the research that you do to be translated to the public. So it is rewarding to see sort of that empirical research that you do. Um make a difference. Um, and I think that any researcher would say that, you know, they love to see their research and their work being translated into the public sphere. Uh, but I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have this, this wonderful team that I work with. That, that it's one of the things I love best about my job is you get to work with all these individuals, I bet it's something that you love in your work too, right? You know, to be able to engage all these big brains and people who are passionate about what they do and they come at the topic from a different level. And this battle against misinformation has kind of expanded that circle. I've got to work with all of these individuals that I wouldn't have worked with but for this kind of information crisis that we're in the middle of. And I'm, I'm phenomenally uh, grateful for that too. And, and of course, grateful for, for the support that, I, that I've got from my institution and, and the funders. But uh, look, it's, it's a really tough battle and um, it's exhausting. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm, I'm thankful that I have this great team.
1: Yeah, the, what a wonderful answer. And, uh, and, and thank you for that, for that effort and, and all of that work. And thank you for joining us today, Tim. Uh, what a great way to spend some time. I, I, I learned a lot uh, in this conversation, uh, very thought-provoking, a lot of I'm going to take away, and I know uh, anybody listening to this uh, conversation is going to take a lot away with them as well. Where, uh, where can people track you down? Where do you want people to engage with you?
0: Well, of course, you know, they're welcome to join me on, on Twitter, uh, at Caulfield Tim. No hate mail, please. Uh, also on Instagram at Caulfield Tim. Um, I, I'm, at, I'm at the University of Alberta, and my you know my particulars are easy to find there. And of course, of course, I want people to to join Science Up First. You know our 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 initiative to try to get the good science out there. So follow Science Up First on on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and, and we're doing more and more on on TikTok. You know, come be part of that 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 Science Up that science up first team, we would yeah. love to have your voice in the mix.
1: That's great. And if, they, you know, if there's a sign company that's listening, any kind of manufacturing company, uh, time, Tim needs somebody to, to make him another pennant with that hashtag for behind his left, uh, <laughs> his left shoulder there. So that's great. Tim, you, Tim, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thanks so much, Jeff. It was a blast.
1: If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at UnleashResults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.